The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Can't do this anymore. I need to come out of retirement. I need to be with the people. I'm back. First question of the interview, why are you running from me? I know what you guys are going to do. What am I going to do? It's right here. This whole... I didn't do anything. I got some deep theological deep, questions. Like deep? Deep, deep. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Hot take? Care to explain? No. Because sandwiches have more than just... More than just <laughs> meat and buns, okay? Okay. They also have cheese and lettuce and tomato, and you don't put that on a hot dog. Okay. All right. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. No? Why? Because it's not like, I don't know, it's... Well, yeah, it is, because it's like in between two pieces of bread, and there's something like in, like meat. Anyway, I got a really important, deep theological question for you. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes. It is. Definitively? Meat between two buns, it's a form of sandwich. It's like every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. That's deep. That's, that's deep. Okay. A hot dog is like the square, which is like the rectangle, and the rectangle is like the square, which is like the rectangle, and the rectangle is the square, which is like the rectangle, and the rectangle is like... I think, I think you're going to offend some people with that answer, but, you know, it's okay. You're going on sabbatical. You're not going to be around for a hot minute, so does pineapple belong on pizza? I'd have to say no, it does not. I think that's going to, like, upset quite a few people watching this. I'm a, I'm a pineapple on my pizza kind of guy, so I don't know. Can we still be friends after? We can be friends. We can have different views and still be friends. I like that. That's a word. Okay. Okay. So uh, last question I got for you. If Jesus was standing right here, having a conversation with us, what's one question that you would want to ask? Would dogs go to heaven? Oh, the best steps and ways to overcome temptation. What should I do today? Why is there suffering in the world? How's it going? How's it going? How's it going, Jesus? What's up? How's it going? I like that. I want to ask him, what is with the washing of the feet? Because feet are nasty. Yep. So as you've heard this morning, we often come to Jesus with all kinds of different questions. But have you ever stopped to contemplate the questions that Jesus asks? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. I don't even know how to follow that. Is a hot dog a sandwich? We're going to get to the answer to that question in just a bit. Hold on. But first, good morning. My name is Ceci, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you've joined us this morning. As Chad mentioned, we're kicking off a new series this morning that we've entitled, The Questions of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we often come with a lot of questions. And Jesus welcomes our questions. These questions are important and valuable. But what if, instead of bringing our questions to Jesus, 
we paid attention to the questions that Jesus asks. And Jesus asks a lot of questions. One writer notes that throughout the Gospels, he asked 307 questions. Jesus' questions were meant to wake up his listeners and to stir up a response. His questions cause us to think, to reflect on our lives, and they change us. My all-time favorite teacher was Mr. Bennington. He was my 11th grade history teacher. And what I loved about Mr. Bennington was that he asked really good questions. But what I hated was that he rarely gave us the answers. History is about facts and events, so I thought he should just give us the answers. But instead, he asked thought-provoking questions that caused us to reflect on the past so that it might impact our present and our future. Our best teachers are not the ones who simply lecture us or give us the answers, but rather the ones who listen and ask good questions so that we might better evaluate our decisions and our choices. Jesus asked good questions so that we might reflect on our lives and so that he might transform us. And so over the next six weeks, we're gonna be taking a closer look at some of these questions that Jesus asked so that we might reflect on our lives, learn from his teaching, and be transformed to live the way of Jesus in our world. Now this morning, we get to our first question. It's found in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. If you have your Bibles or your devices, turn or scroll there with me. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. And this first question is perhaps the most fundamental question of life. And here's what Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus? And the way you answer this question can profoundly impact your life. The way you answer this question can, can shape and determine the course and the direction of your life. The Barner Group conducted a study a few years ago where they asked Americans what they believed about Jesus. And 92% of Americans said they believed Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived. But that's not the question that Jesus asked. He didn't ask, do you believe that I exist? The question Jesus asked his disciples, the question that he's asking each one of us this morning is, who do you say I am? This is not a question of existence. This is a question of identity. It's a provocative question. It's a confronting question. It's a question that evokes a response. And the implications of your answer can transform your life. Now, I know there are some of you here this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you've got questions or, or doubts. And I am so glad you're here. But this morning, Jesus has a question for you. Who do you say I am? Others of you have been following Jesus for years, and yet this question is for you as well because the answer to this question must, must radically change your life. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna walk through this scene with you, and I want us to look at the question, the answer, and then three implications of the answer. The question, the answer, three implications of the answer. See where we're going? All right, well, before we get there, though, let me give you a little bit of background of what's happening here. 
This scene takes place in Caesarea Philippi. This is a a pagan city that's located in the northernmost part of Israel. It's right on the border of pagan territory. And it's a city dominated by immoral activities and pagan worship. Paganism was a worldview that was sort of a mishmash between religion and spirituality that was prevalent throughout the Greco-Roman world. And this city was originally called Panaeus, after the Greek god Pan, who was a fertility god. Augustus Caesar gave this city to Herod the Great. And Herod built this great white marble temple to Caesar. And then Herod gave the city to his son Philip, who renamed it Caesarea Philippi, in honor of Caesar and himself. And so this city is a center of worship to Caesar and to Pan. And located in the city was a cave that was called the Cave of Pan, which the pagans believed was the gate to Hades, the gate to the underworld. In Greek mythology, it's also believed that Pan was the only god to ever die. And so Jesus comes to this pagan, immoral city known for its worship of Caesar and Pan, and he asks this question, who do you say I am? Let's take a look. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Jesus asked, who do people say I am? What, what are the people saying about me? Now, by this time, Jesus is healing, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and so people are talking about him. And so he asks, what are the ideas, what are the thoughts that people have about me? Jesus asked this, person in, this question in the third person. What do other people say about me? Who do other people say I am? And when we ask this kind of question, we can keep Jesus at a safe distance. And we can deal with him at an intellectual level that doesn't really impact our lives. The question, is a hot dog a sandwich, is about an intellectual idea that some of us are really passionate about. Some of us, like Pastor Barry, believe that it's a sandwich. It's meat between bread. That's a sandwich. Others, like myself, would argue that a hot dog is something unique and altogether different. It is a culinary delight, and therefore, it's in a category all by itself. Now, as part of my sermon prep, I've done a lot of research about hot dogs. When Barry puts a sermon together, he studies the Hebrew and the Greek. When I put a sermon together, I study hot dogs. Now, I'm sorry, but also you're welcome. Is a hot dog a sandwich? This is the burning question. As the official voice of hot dogs, the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, this is real, the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council has settled this debate once and for all, and they say a hot dog is a delectable food that is truly a category unto its own. You cannot limit the significance of a hot dog by calling it a sandwich. It's so much more. Friends, the experts have spoken. A hot dog is not a sandwich. Now, some of you might not agree with me. Don't email me about this. Email me about other things, not about hot dogs. (laughs) But this is a question that we have different ideas about. And quite often, we stay in the realm of ideas and theories when it comes to Jesus. Even if you grew up in the church, Jesus can still be an abstract idea to you. Maybe he's a nice idea or perhaps even a comforting idea. 
But if Jesus is just an abstract idea, then you're free to believe what you want about him, and you're also free to reject what you don't like. If Jesus is just an idea, then he can't really tell us what to do or how to live. And so the disciples respond, verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People aren't really sure, but they know that he's more than an ordinary man. At the very least, he must be a prophet like Jeremiah or Elijah. They recognize that there's something unique about Jesus. And similarly, today there are different ideas of Jesus as well. He's a good teacher. He's a holy man, a wise sage, a prophet. But then Jesus takes it even further and he moves from an impersonal question to a much more personal question. 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And here's the answer. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter always has to be the first one to talk. He's, he's rash and he's impulsive. His mouth often moves faster than his brain and he never gives his brain a chance to catch up. But here he goes. And he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Messiah means anointed king. And by Jesus' day, it was a title for a specific king that was to come. Based on the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Jews of Jesus' day believed that God would one day send an anointed king who would free Israel from oppression and bring justice and peace to the world. But nobody knew when or where this would happen or even what the Messiah would be like. And to be known as the Messiah was to attract attention from the authorities and most certainly hostility. Which is why in verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. My time has not yet come. I still have work to do. And so he doesn't want his identity to be revealed to the world. But Peter confesses, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. You are the one that Israel has been waiting for. You are the one that the world has been waiting for. But that's not all of, G of Peter's confession. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He doesn't just say son of God, he says son of the living God. And this is Peter's indirect dig at Pan. Peter says, our God is alive, unlike the, the, gods, the gods that you pagans worship. Your God is dead. Peter is saying, look Jesus, I don't understand everything about who you are or even what you're up to but you have something that we don't. You have this relationship with God where you call him father and you somehow share in the father's essence in your very being. Peter and the disciples will only fully understand who Jesus is after his resurrection, but they're, they're only now coming to understand that Jesus is so much more than just a rabbi. He's the Messiah, the anointed king. He's the son of the living God. Peter is wrestling with the mystery of God, and this is the clearest statement of Jesus' identity. And so Jesus responds, 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, my but by my Father in heaven. Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And I think in this moment, Peter was like, wait a minute, I'm right? 
Like, I'm actually right about something? Because this never happens. And so Peter's surprised. The disciples are surprised. And then Jesus says, hold on, Peter, hold on. This was not revealed to you by human knowledge or your own insight. This was revealed to you by God. This is divine revelation, a gift from God. If you wanted to get to know me, there's a few ways you could do that. You could talk to people who know me, my family, my friends, the people I work with here at IBC. You could listen to some of my sermons. You could listen to our podcast. You could go on social media. You, you could learn a lot about me. You could learn about where I grew up, where I went to school, where I've worked. You might even learn about the things I like to do or the places I've been, books I read, restaurants I enjoy, music I listen to. You could learn a lot of facts about me, but that wouldn't really tell you who I am, not at the core of it. The best way for you to get to know me is for us to sit down over a really good meal, good food and good drink, and for me to share myself with you. For me to tell you the happiest moments of my life and the hardest moments of my life. For me to tell you my hopes and dreams and my fears and anxieties, my failures. For me to tell you what brings me joy and what makes me anxious. The only way, the best way for you to get to know me or to get to know anyone is through self-disclosure. It's me revealing myself to you, sharing myself with you. Unless you see Jesus for who he says he is, not for who others say he is or for who you think he is or who our culture tells us he is. Unless you see Jesus for who he says he is, you will never truly know him. If Jesus is just a reflection of your ideas or your desires, if he never confronts you or challenges you or contradicts you, he's not really God. He's just a figment of your imagination. He's a God of your own making. Friends, we cannot let others determine who Jesus is. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. Only Jesus can tell us who he is. And this is the only way to truly know him. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, who do you say he is? A great teacher, a wise sage, an important historical figure? Jesus will have none of that. This morning, Jesus asks, who do you say I am? He is the Messiah, the son of the living God. We've looked at the question, who do you say I am? We've looked at the answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter's confession. 
Now we'll look at three implications of this answer. Here's the first implication, a radical commitment. If Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one who came to save us from our sins, then you must follow him. Most world religions begin with the teacher or a sage or a prophet who, who gives a set of teachings or guidelines, rules to follow. Do these things, follow these rules, and you can be right with God. But that's not what God does. God doesn't send us a teacher. He sends us a savior. He sends us his son. God doesn't send a prophet to tell you to come to him. God himself comes to you. The gospel is not good advice about what you must do. It's good news about what's been done for you. See, advice tells you that it's all up to you. You have to make it happen. You have to work hard. But news tells you what someone else has already done for you. Jesus is the anointed king who comes to rescue us from sin and death and usher in his kingdom where justice and peace will reign forever. And if Jesus is God, then he's not someone who just gives you good advice. He's not your mentor or your coach or your counselor. If Jesus is God, then he must be worshiped. He's the ultimate love, the supreme beauty of your life. If Jesus is God, he is what is most valuable, most beautiful, most necessary, most important in your life. If Jesus is God, then you must center your life on him. And today, many of us call ourselves followers of Jesus, but we are confusing admiration for Jesus with commitment to Jesus. We are assuming knowledge about Jesus is the same as intimacy with Jesus. And today there are many who believe in Jesus and yet their lives haven't been transformed. They think that he's got some good things to say, but that's about it. But if Jesus is God, that truth ought to upend your life. You can't say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but don't mess with my finances. Don't mess with my marriage. I'll follow you, Jesus, but don't mess with my sexuality. If Jesus is God, there's no part of your life that you can withhold from him. Jesus wants all of you. And following Jesus will mess with your life. It will make you uncomfortable. Jesus will confront you and challenge you, but he will also comfort you and captivate you with his beauty, goodness, and love. Friends, belief is much more than just intellectual assent. Belief must always lead to a commitment to follow. 11 years ago, I was living in New Jersey and I had a successful career in corporate finance. I loved what I did, my career was going well, and I had all these plans for my life. And in many ways, my life was going the way I wanted. I was leading a Bible study uh, for several years, and through that, I saw God use me to help others grow in their faith, and it was the most exhilarating experience of my life. Because if you ask me, what is it that you do that when you do it, you feel most alive, you're most passionate about, you feel the most joy, I would tell you it's when I teach God's word. But it was this thing that I sort of did on the side. And about that time, I felt the Lord calling me to leave my career and go to seminary. And I did not want to go. Now, I didn't say no to God because you shouldn't say no to God. I just ignored him. <laughs> and over the course of three years, God relentlessly pursued me. And I thought, if I ignore him long enough, he'll just sort of forget about it and move on to someone else. 
I thought I could outweigh the God of the universe. I know. That's not the way God works. And I remember distinctly, there was this one day where I was praying and I felt the Lord ask me, Sissy, do you really believe I am who I say I am? And I was sort of annoyed at God for asking me that question. Of course I believe who you are. I know who you are, God. And in the next moment, I felt the Lord ask me, then why won't you follow me? Why won't you obey me? And I couldn't ignore that question. I thought about that question incessantly for weeks. I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't forget it. See, I didn't want to obey God because I wanted a comfortable life. What God was asking me to do felt too risky. It would ruin my career, this thing I'd worked so hard for, this thing that was part, so part of my identity. But if God is who he says he is, this is the conclusion I came to as I thought about that question. If God is who he says he is, then I must follow him. If God is who he says he is, then it's not foolish for me to leave my career and go to seminary with no plan. If God is who he says he is, it's the smartest thing I could do. And so eight and a half years ago, I moved here to Dallas. I went to seminary and then I came here to IBC. And God has done more than I could ask or imagine in those eight and a half years. I'm not telling you it was easy because in many ways it's been hard. But God's plans for my life are so much better than anything I could have come up with. I'm not telling you that, that you need to quit your job and go to seminary. That was God's call on my life. But maybe for you, it means that you gotta work at your marriage even when it's hard. Maybe it means you need to take a lesser paying job because that's the way you could make a difference in the world for Jesus. Maybe it means that you need to use your free time to serve the poor rather than pursuing your own interests. Maybe you're a high schooler here this morning and it means that you're not gonna just go with the crowd. That, that you're not gonna just do what your friends are doing because it wouldn't be honoring to Jesus. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that ought to lead to a radical commitment. Here's the second implication, a new identity. 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter was not a name in Hebrew or Aramaic. It was a noun that means rock. Jesus likely spoke Aramaic. Matthew wrote his gospel in Greek and we're reading an English translation. And so in many ways, we lose the impact of the wordplay that Jesus is using here. In Aramaic, Peter and rock are the same word. And so Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, Simon, you are the rock. Jesus gives Peter a new identity, a new purpose. Now, Peter isn't some first century Jewish version of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Don't imagine Peter with, with bulging biceps here. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, Peter, you are the rock in your role as confessor. He's the spokesman for the, the, the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to use you, Peter, to build my church. You will no longer be an ordinary fisherman. You now go from Simon to Peter, from rash and hot-headed 
to strong and stable. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you receive a new identity so that you might live out your true purpose. You become more of the person that God has always intended you to be, a richer, fuller, truer expression of yourself. This is what Jesus did for Peter. This is what Jesus longs to do for each one of us. Jesus gives us a new identity. It's a confession that leads to a radical commitment And it's a confession that leads to a new identity. Here's the third implication. A new community. 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter is the rock in his role as confessor and others will build on this foundation by their proclamation of this very same confession. Jesus is building his church. He's starting a new community of people through Peter and the disciples. And in this culture, the the keys were given to the highest servant in charge or the highest public official. And so Jesus says, Peter, I'm giving you authority to unlock the door to my house, to welcome in all people into this community, which is what we see Peter do in the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at Acts 2, and in Acts 2, Peter preaches and welcomes into the kingdom Jews from all over the world. In Acts 8, he welcomes Samaritans, who are the hated enemies of the Jews. In Acts 10, he welcomes Cornelius, a Gentile Roman military officer and his household. Do you see how radical the church is? The church is not a building or a program. The church is the community of God empowered by the Spirit, no longer based on ethnicity or socioeconomic background or gender, but based on allegiance to King Jesus. All other communities that we belong to are now secondary to this community built by and around the person of Jesus. Binding and loosing was common language in Jesus' day. Jesus is saying, Peter, when you make a decision here on earth, that decision has already been made in heaven. Jesus is guiding Peter and the rest of the community as he builds his church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. All the powers of death and hell will not overcome the church. And quite often it can feel like the the church is on the defense being assaulted by the evil of the world around us. But Jesus says, no, 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 the church is on the offense. All the powers of death and hell were not able to stand against the advance of the church into the Greco-Roman world. And 2,000 years later, the temple of Pan has been destroyed, Caesar is dead, and paganism is no longer a dominant worldview. But the church, the church is alive and well and flourishing, thriving and growing all over the world. Friends, the powers of death and hell will one day be defeated. There will be a day when the powers of death and hell will no longer prevail in our lives and in our world. The church is advancing when we share God's love with the world around us. The church is advancing when we stand for the rights of the poor and the oppressed. The church is advancing when we serve the needy. The church is advancing when we bring the hope of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it. Friends, the church is advancing. Jesus has promised, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Do you believe it this morning? The third implication of this confession 
is that we live as part of this new community. This morning, Jesus asked each of us, who do you say I am? And the answer is Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you're not a follower of Jesus and and you've got questions and doubts, again, I'm so glad you're here. But maybe, just maybe, this is that moment where you need to answer that question that Jesus is asking, who do you say I am? Maybe this is that moment where you put your trust in Jesus as your savior and as your king. And if you're not ready for that, that's okay. Keep coming back. Come be part of Alpha on Wednesday nights where a group of people gather together and they process those questions and doubts. Consider who Jesus is. Consider his way of life and see if it does not lead you to the life that you are longing for. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, perhaps this morning Jesus is asking you that question again. And there's three implications to your answer. First, your confession must lead to a radical commitment. Are you confusing admiration for Jesus with commitment to Jesus? Are you assuming that knowledge about Jesus is the same as intimacy with Jesus? If Jesus is God, then there's no part of your life that you can withhold from him. He wants all of you. If Jesus is God, then that truth ought to upend your life. Have you made a radical commitment to follow Jesus? And secondly, your confession must lead to a new identity. When you put your trust in Jesus, you receive a new identity so that you might live out your true purpose. You become more of the person that God has always destined you to be, a a fuller, richer expression of your true self. Jesus longs to give you a new identity. Will you embrace this new identity that Jesus wants to give you? Thirdly, your confessions must lead to living as part of a new community. The church is not a building or a program or an event. The church is the community of God, empowered by the Spirit, no longer based on ethnicity or socioeconomic background, gender, or any other barrier that we can put up, but based on allegiance to King Jesus and King Jesus alone. The church is advancing, thriving all over the world. There will be a day when the powers of death and hell will one day be defeated. Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Are you living as part of that new community? Friends, this morning, Jesus asked each one of us, who do you say I am? May our confession be, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. And may this confession transform our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And as we each explore this question, may our confession lead us to make a radical commitment to follow Jesus. May it lead us to embrace this new identity that Jesus offers us. And may it lead us to live as part of this new community that Jesus is building, his church. We love you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, 
visit irvingbible.org news.